Welcome to Macintosh and Mod. Haven't seen what? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. Freddy Krueger returns once again to terrorize the dreams of the remaining dream warriors, as well as those of a young woman who may be able to defeat him for good. Well. <laughs> we were doing so well, weren't we? We did. You know, we had some weirdness, some bad dialogue, which, you know, is par for the course in the 80s. And then we have this. Nothing happened in this movie. Not really. And it's so bizarre because this film is like a direct sequel to the last one in so many ways. And yet it's like on a different planet. Not only is it on a different planet, it's a direct sequel that also manages to destroy everything remaining from the prior movie in about the first 30 minutes. Pretty close. And then, like, let's be clear. It's cool that she, like, absorbs the powers of her dead friends. That's cool. But that could have easily been a part of three and didn't need to be its own thing for four. Well, uh, no, it's a new character, though, right? Like, Yeah, I get that. In the third movie... Kristen has this ability to pull people into dreams Mm -hmm. and the plot centers on that. So in this new version, now you have someone who doesn't just have that, but whose whole life has dealt with dreams and therefore absorbs the powers of others in those dreams Mm -hmm. and therefore is the only person who can defeat Freddy. Yeah, that's fine. The problem is, is we don't see her use that power until the last 10 minutes of this hour and a half movie. (laughs) Mm -hmm. She does nothing. People get murdered around her constantly, and she does nothing. Mm -hmm. It's wild. Yeah, and I think the biggest issue is that we have the same character, but we have a different actress. That doesn't help. No. So... No one really knows the exact reason why Patricia Arquette didn't come back. Some people thought she was asking for too much money. She was also pregnant at the time. She was also already committed to far north. So like they just didn't know. But she did comment on it in 2017 in an interview. She said they asked me to come back, but she was just starting to break into like media roles. And she had just done this uh, a movie about like a teen pregnancy called Daddy in 87. And she loved the horror genre, but she was ready to do other things. So, like, it sounds like she was just like, she had other opportunities that were just too good for her to say no to. So that's why she didn't come back. Which is fine. I just, it's not just that they recast her. Okay, that's pretty 80s move. Sure. It's that they recast her and then killed her off in the first act. At which point we then do nothing until the very end of the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. It's fine to kill Kristen off, but Kristen should have been there for a good chunk of this movie. She should have been there for at least a good half of the movie. And I would have rather, they needed to do a much better job of reestablishing that this is Kristen, even though she looks a little different, which they did not do at all. Nope, not even a little bit. Didn't even try. They didn't even try. So at which point it's like, then why do we need her? You could have easily had one of the other returning characters from three kind of pass the baton to a new character, which we have to do anyways for this story to work. 
Yeah. And it could have easily been like retconned with like our good friend Kristen helped us and taught us this move. So we're going to teach it to you too. Like it could have been something as stupid as that. I guess if you really wanted to go that way, but I think it's far more powerful to Nancy died in the last one, passed the baton to Kristen. Now Kristen has to pass the baton to this other character, sure. to Alice. And in order to do that, it needs to be the, the impetus for the third act of the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, these movies are not, they're not working on complex planes, okay? They're all three-act structures. They're very basic. Yeah. And again, if you had Kristen there the whole time and then Kristen's the last one to die because Alice just can't save her. Or- Even though they're trying to fight this off. And in that moment, Kristen is like, you have to do this yourself. Okay. But I will also argue that if Patricia Arquette was playing Kristen in this film, the Kristen storyline as written works a lot better. Maybe. I think it's not perfect now, but again, let's look at the genre and the time, (laughs) the timing, but all of that like exposition work doesn't have to exist if Patricia Arquette is there. Well, regardless, it's terrible. That's not great. We have a budget of $13 million for this film. Which is so much more money. I know. It's the most expensive nightmare on Elm Street and- Till it gets surpassed by Freddy versus Jason, which had $25 million. That's fair. We're doing a whole fun reboot thing. Sure. Um, it opened to $12.8 million, Not bad. And it grossed $49 million. So it did great. It was the highest grossing entry of The Nightmare on Elm Street, not counting Freddy versus Jason. So this movie made a fuck ton of money. How do Dream Warriors and the original look and feel better than this movie that has literally four times the budget. Oh, I can tell you why. The story's better. <laughs> well, yes. Crazy. But also the look is god awful. The look on this one I think is really our director, but also we're in the late 80s now and we started doing things a little bit different. I guess. Mm-hmm. But man, There are times where you can see, okay, now you've upped the ante, you've done more. And in this one, it's the opposite. This this movie feels like it was made before the original. Mm -hmm. It's so schlocky and so badly put together. Yeah, it is. So where did that money go? (laughs) That's the question. So this film did come out in 1988. It was also the first year in which all three of the top horror franchises Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, and Halloween all released new films in the same year. We got this, The Dream Master, Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood, and Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. Halloween being like, yeah, we get it. We we shouldn't have gotten rid of Mike Myers. Mm-hmm. Noble cause. Apparently Halloween 3 is a great movie. It's just not a Halloween movie. Fair. Valid. So let's let's get into like our first problem with this movie, the writing. Mm-hmm. Wes Craven is credited because, of course, he created the characters. He turned down New Line Cinema's offer to write and direct this uh, their script. Um, but him and Bruce Wagner did come up with a concept for the film that involved time travel through dreams. 
but producers Robert Shea and Sarah Risher felt that was too high concept for a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel and didn't think the it fit the formula that Craven had created with the first film. How would you know, you big sack of shit? <laughs> Pretty much. If Wes is doing it, it fits the vision. Mm-hmm. And next, we have William Coswinkle for story. Um, he doesn't have any other credits except for being responsible for the novelization of E.T. Okay. Then we have Brian Helgeland for both story and screenplay. This is his debut screenplay. After this, he did 976 Evil, Highway to Hell, Assassins, LA Confidential, Conspiracy Theory, The Postman, Payback, A Knight's Tale, Mystic River, Man on Fire, The Taking of Felum 123, Green Zone, Robin Hood 2010, 42, and Legend. He also has an upcoming script for Cleopatra with Denny Villeneuve, an original script for The Wild Bunch, and he is also writing and directing a crime thriller starring Jenna Ortega, Ben Foster, and Tommy Lee Jones. This guy is an Oscar winner now. This man has Oscar nods and wins. Mm-hmm. What? He was recommended by Robert England. Ah. Because Robert England's directorial debut is 976 Evil. Okay. That was done before this film, but came out after. Got it. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Well, I, it took him a little bit, but he got a groove and have an oscar winner involved in this goddamn movie i know i mean like like hey a lot of amazing direct like writers and directors get their start in horror true like no shade uh finally we have jim and ken wheat who are credited as scott pierce their writing duo and that's their pen name uh this is their debut after this they went on to the fly two after midnight pitch black and they're responsible for the characters for the chronicles of riddick Also carved out a niche for themselves. Yeah. During the writing of this film, Rennie Harland, who is our director, and we'll talk about him in a minute, and some of the producers just bumped into James Cameron. And James Cameron (laughs) asked Harland, like, how are you bringing back Freddy? Because, you know, he's dead. And Harlan, being a a joker, was like, a dog pisses fire on him and he comes back to life. And that's what they ended up doing. It was a total joke. And they're like, well... Maybe. I am withholding comment until we get to our director because that man is bonkers. Indeed. I it's it's just constructed so poorly because it is it is one thing to have a movie that is bonkers, right? Mm-hmm. Number two broke the rules, didn't fit right, but was still a wildly entertaining movie. Mm-hmm. Because it had a lot of just bonkers, interesting story elements. Yeah. So at the end of that one, we're like, yeah, it doesn't fit, but it's still a really entertaining movie. This movie is so boring. Mm-hmm. You cannot, the, the death knell of a horror movie is you can be bad, but if you are wild and crazy, the bad will be overcome. Sure. We don't expect a high level of quality. We do expect some crazy shit. Yeah. Or funny. Being self-referential works very well. And this movie doesn't do any of that. Mm -hmm. It just spends some time murdering people for no apparent reason. Yeah. Our director is Rennie Harlan, who we have talked about before. Yes, we have. Uh, Before this, he did uh, Born American and Prison. After this, 
He does Die Hard 2, The Adventures of Ford Farlane, Cliffhanger, Cutthroat Island, Deep Blue Sea, Driven, Exorcist, The Beginning, The Covenant, 12 Rounds, Devil's Pass, and The Misfits. What do we think of the directing? This man should not be around a horror movie ever. I think he could do a horror film that has a very strong story. If he was if he was directing a Wes Craven story, I think he would do great. This is an action director first and foremost. And that's okay. I don't have a problem with there being action in a horror film. I'm sorry. His best movies are when it is pure action thriller. This man we talked about cliffhanger and how much we loved cliffhanger cliffhanger was great it's die hard on a mountain and uh-huh. the and best it's, way and it's flawlessly executed because the man knows how to do big huge set pieces sure freddy does not give you any room to do big things see i don't think that's true i think the problem here is he could be a great guy for horror but he didn't have the script for it. So then we get into this silly, weird territory where we're adding shit that doesn't make sense for the story. So we have to have the right story for him. Well, because again, if you leave it to him, he's just going to be like, what's the stupidest thing we can do right now? See, no, no, here's the thing. He could have directed the shit out of three. Probably. That that I could agree with. If you put Rennie Harlan on Dream Warriors, where you're dealing with these actual battles and things like that, exactly. he probably would have gotten that tone better and had enough input on the script to fix that. Mm-hmm. The, we, we've already established the script is just terrible. He is also the wrong person to make this sure. movie. I don't disagree. It's a, it's a character baton handoff. Sure. I don't think the direction is garbage, though. Is it? Is it right for this film? No. It's not no, it's not garbage. And it's it's very telltale his sort of wild action-y. You watch Die Hard 2, you watch Cliffhanger. The man is a pretty bonkers Finnish dude who just tries to get the craziest shot he can possibly think of. Mm-hmm. That's just like his whole MO. And he does it throughout this whole movie. It's just for no effect whatsoever. It has mm-hmm. no impact. It's just like, wow, what a crazy ass shot. Where is this going? Because the whole time, Alice just keeps getting thrown under the bus. Mm-hmm. So he, he's just wildly inappropriate for the story we are telling because he focuses so much time on the murders and so little time on the character who is supposed to be the most important part of this movie. Mm-hmm. And as a director, if you don't get that, you fucked up. Yeah. Rennie Harlan got the job by refusing to take no for an answer. He was rejected, and then he just kept showing up to New Line Cinema's offices asking to talk to Robert Shea. And then for like a bunch of different reasons, they didn't like any of the other directors who came in for meetings, and Harlan was always around. So eventually, they were just like, okay, you'll do. This man is just pure cocaine wrapped up in a movie director. Yep. I mean, good on you, dude. It landed you Die Hard 2. Yeah. So I guess we can't be too mad, but wow. But also, according to Harlan, Shea rarely spoke to him throughout the shoot. So when Har- when Shay came on set to do his cameo, it was very difficult. <laughs> and like, basically, Harlan just acted like it was his last day on set every day because he was assuming he was going to get fired. Jesus. 
Robert Shea is a dick. How did we make this many of these movies? It is telling, though, just because I know the numbers Mm -hmm. of how fewer movies we made in this series than were in the Jason series. Mm -hmm. Because you had a guy at the helm who was impossible to work with. Yeah. Like, that's very clear and telling that they made so many more Friday the 13th. Yeah. Uh, Reportedly... There's, a, there's basically a director's version of this film. It was apparently considered too campy and ridiculous, so cuts were made before the theatrical release. Harlan's original had a different score and had many deleted and extended scenes, including a scene with Kristen in which she's chased by Freddie soon after he killed Joey and Kincaid, an extended version of the beach scene where Freddie's shadow is touching and burning her with sunburns, and then like the and the part of the problem is a couple of these bits are seen in the theatrical trailer but they're not in the film. <sighs> that all sounds perfectly fine but I don't think it fixes the problem that we've already identified. True. Sounds like he had some interesting more extended sequences but it doesn't fix the handoff issue. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't fix the fact that this movie it's like it's avoiding dealing with its main character. Mm. The entire movie. Mm. I don't think you're wrong. It's so dull because the entire time it's like, this girl is the main character. Why are we not? We're not. We're just not going to talk about her. We're just not even going to do anything until now. Okay. Fantastic. What did I sit through this for? (laughs) Yeah. All right. Let's get to our cast. Okay. All right. We start with Robert England. It's Freddy Krueger. Man, they're making him do like bad schlocky stand up bits now. This is his favorite of the series. Okay. (laughs) He got to do fun things. I get that. Some of it is, I mean, the beach scene is pretty great and iconic. If we'll talk about the other actors. That that one is on par with the Nancy bathtub scene as being fucked up and amazing. Nah, because it's too silly. The bathtub scene is so much fucking scarier. (laughs) Yeah, but I love it. Uh, it it's fine. It just there's a lot of it that I went really. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to make Freddy have bits, and that's how you keep this going. Like he can't just be pure creepy the, for the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. That uh, that doesn't work. However, it can't be all bits all the time, and it feels like it's headed that way in this one. I don't know about that. I do like it though. There's not enough scary Freddy for me. Scary Freddy. Okay, I can buy that. There's just a lot of goofy shit and then murder. And there's not enough of the fact that it's like, also, he's a terrifying monster. Yes, he makes good jokes and one-liners, but like, he should be terrifying. <laughs> I, unless we're not making a horror movie anymore. Well, maybe not. This is the first film in the franchise where Robert England receives top billing. As he should at this point. Mm-hmm. Like, th- this is the point for real where we are like, yeah, there's, he is the franchise. Yeah. Next, we have Tuesday Night as Kristen. Uh, before this, she did not a whole lot, nothing of note. After this, she was in The Prom, Calendar Girl, New Nightmare, The Babysitter, The Fan, and The Theory of the Leisure Class. Uh, she also sang the opening theme song for this film. What do we think of Tuesday night? Pain. <laughs> She's so bad. Oh, man. So bad. It's one thing 
for Patricia Arquette to say, I can't justify doing this anymore. Sure. Like, I think the interview, she's being very gracious. And I do think she, along with a lot of people, would be like, yeah, I'd be open to like re recoming back to the story and these ideas. Mm -hmm. But we got such a downgrade. <laughs> she is so not good at all. There's no acting. No. None. No, even her screaming is bad. I can accept bad acting if you have a really good horror movie scream. I mean, true. I can accept that, but nope, we don't have either of those. And I'm just going to say, that's going to be a broken record for this entire goddamn movie. Yeah. <laughs> so during the filming, uh, several of the actors did not like her because there was a rumor that she and Rennie Harlan were involved. And mm. so they felt that she was getting special attention and everyone else was getting ignored by this relationship. So much so that when they did the Never Sleep Again documentary, which we absolutely are going to have to watch, they all talked about this and that like they were jealous and they thought it was awful. That was it. Rennie Harlan flatly denies this in his biography. I mean, you would. Sure. And also, you could very much be lying. I wouldn't. It's 1988 in Hollywood. Yeah. The rules are not, they're yeah. almost non-existent. Yeah. Like, none of this would shock me. And for Rennie to say, absolutely not. And then for a significant number of other cast members saying it. Yeah. I'm, mm -hmm. it's, it's one thing when it's like, if it was Alice's actress being the only one who said it, okay, then we've got a dispute. If like five people are saying it over here and the director's like, I never, I can't do a Finnish accent. I wish I could. I never did that. I don't believe you, dude. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I here's the thing. Regardless, the rest of the cast felt like something was going on and they were being treated poorly in favor of her. So romance or not, something was going on. Especially when she's your weakest actress. Seriously. Next, we have Lisa Wilcox as Alice. Before this, she did a little bit of TV. But after this, she's, she'll return for Nightmare 5. She did a lot more television. She was also in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, the TV show, as Misty Preston. And then she just did a bunch more TV. What do we think of Lisa Wilcox? Also, very, very boring. She is very boring. She is not as bad as Tuesday Night, but she... I really can't tell if it's the writing or if it's her, but they are not a good match. Some of it is very much, again, the problem that Alice has nothing to do but stare and be shocked by all the bad things happening around her mm -hmm. until the very end of the movie. She also has no compelling presence to be able to overcome mm -hmm. any moment of that. I'm... I was fine with her being kind of a wallflower type in the beginning. For sure. And then you would think that like as she's starting to absorb these powers, she would start to like grow in some of her resolve, but she doesn't. And actually the part where I am just over it is when she yells at her brother and her boyfriend and runs down the hallway at school. <laughs> it was so bad. It's a yell in the 80s run. It's so hilarious to me how bad it was. She has no compelling presence whatsoever to get past this stuff and the writing doesn't give anything to. 
And it's it's a match made in hell. <laughs> According to the casting director Annette Benson, more than 600 actresses auditioned for the role of Alice. Do do we have who could have been better? We do not. No. They were probably all no names, which is fine, but none of them were better than her. But again, I know. They may have been all no names in 1988. True, but we don't know who they are. Ah. Uh, Lisa Wilcox was on her honeymoon when she was cast as Alice and needed to come back to Los Angeles immediately to start shooting. She also had to dye her natural blonde hair red so that she would look different than Tuesday Night, who was cast as Kristen. By the way, this is where Winona Ryder could have been fucking incredible. She could have been very good. And also her being a little on the younger looking side would have also been fine. Mm -hmm. At this point, however, she's already headed to Heather's and then Beetlejuice, so... Not a ch- not a snowball's chance in hell that was happening. All right, our puns. Random people of note. All right, we have Brooke Bundy as Elaine. She's returning from Nightmare Three. That is Kristen's mom. She's worse in this movie than in Dream Warriors. How did that happen? She's just a neglectful bad mom. That's that's. You would think she learned something from that movie. She's absent, neglectful, and stupid. That's that's the hallmark of an '80s parent, truly. Well, and let me be clear: it's not that Brooke Bundy is bad. Her character is so bad. Somehow they made this character worse than before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, next, we have Rodney Eastman as Joey. He's also making a return from four, as well as Ken Sagos as Kincaid. They speak. Joey speaks. Yeah, which they established in the last film, which is great. I would have liked to see more of them outside of the dream world together. That would have been good. Uh, they actually wanted larger parts in the film and were shocked when they got reduced parts. Fair. Well, because they don't want to pay y'all. Mm-hmm. Kristen Clayton as the little girl. She was the little girl in Kristen's dream in the last movie. So now she's this one. She's still the little girl. <laughs> so that's that's fun. I like that they kept the same creepy girl. I mean, if there's one character as iconic as Freddy. Uh, we have Andrus Jones as Rick. He later played a bully in Good Morning Miss Bliss, which is like the pre- the precursor to Saved by the Bell. Um, his characters asked if his last school was St. Freddy's on Elm Street in that show. It's pretty funny. Uh, next, we have Dwayne Davis as a jock. Uh, he is the son of Packers legend Willie Davis, and he played some college ball and is in a bunch of sports movies. He looks like a big old football player. Yeah. Joanna Lapari as a nurse. Uh, she's actually a doctor of psychology and did some postdoctoral work alongside... Some small gigs. Some fun things you can find out about people on IMDb. Yeah, it's it's fun. Like when <laughs> you find like this random thing, like I, think, I can't remember what series that we were doing, but we're like, this person was the first president of SAG. And we're like, well, that's interesting. Oh, it was the musical series. Because, you know, when you're reaching back into like 1933, you have no idea who any of these people are. Yeah. But the trivia is fascinating. Yeah, like some of the stuff you learn is great. That's part of why we enjoy doing this. Uh, we have Leanna Quigley as the soul from Freddy's chest. Um, she's like that main one. Uh, she is a B-movie scream queen legend, and she has appeared in Silent Night, Deadly Night, and uh, The Return of the Living Dead. Nice. Jake the dog. Um, he is also um, an animal actor who appeared in The Hidden and Two Moon Junction. 
cute dog. Yeah, cute dog. Pisses fire. Yeah. Rennie Harland uh, makes a cameo as a student in the classroom. Oh, look, a director. Yeah. Robert Shea as our lecturer. That's our producer. Yeah. What a dick. Yeah. Next, we have Trivia. Trivia. This is the only film in the franchise to have an original song in the opening credits. Neat. Yeah. It's not good. No. Okay. And we were talking about this. I didn't even realize. I didn't mention it in the last one. The music in three was so good. It was very good. And it was because it was Angelo Badalamenti, who many people will know as David Lynch's longtime collaborator, who, among many things, created the Twin Peaks theme. Yep. So, like, fucking great music. And then you've got the Dawkins song, which is stupid, but very ace. It works very well. Instead, it's like they took that Dawkins song, gave it to a bunch of no-name, B-list, pretty mediocre musicians and said, write these. Yeah. And it's so bad. Mm-hmm. All of it. Uh, this is also the first film to have a rap song in the end credits. God almighty. Oh, oh yes. <sighs> The name of the diner where Alice works is called The Crave Inn, which is a reference to our franchise creator, Wes Craven. Uh, uh, Rick and Alice were twins in the script, though it's never really established in the movie. I mean, I guess, but that doesn't really mean anything unless you're going to actually do something with that. Mm -hmm. The success of this film convinced producers to create Freddy Nightmares. That's the television show. Okay. At around 34 minutes, a magazine can be seen in Kristen's room that has a picture of Johnny Depp, who starred in the first film, and has a brief cameo in The Final Nightmare. Ah. Mm -hmm. In the scene when Rick is teaching Alice the kick, one of her shoes flies into the sink fishbowl, and you can see in the fishbowl is a little doll hand with long nails, like the Freddy glove. Pretty good. That's pretty cute. At around 15 minutes in Kincaid's room, you can see a poster for The Hills Have Eyes on his bedroom wall, which is a nod to Wes Craven, who directed that film. Uh, you know, Rennie seems to actually enjoy Wes's oeuvre, so. Sure. That seems fun. When Dan and Alice go to the hospital, there's an announcement in the PA requesting Dr. Shea, a reference to Robert Shea, who is the producer of this franchise. Throw him in the fire. Uh-huh. Uh, when Kristen is in the hospital hitting her head, the nurse changes into Freddy, who has vials of blood in his right hand. One of the vials, uh, the one that's closest to the camera, says England for Robert. Mm-hmm. Tuesday night was originally supposed to wear a more revealing bikini on the beach scene, but refused despite the insistence of Harlan. <sighs> that just makes it even weirder. Yes, it does. The car junkyard set from number three is featured in Kincaid's Nightmare. And the set was created by designer uh, Mick Strawn, who worked as the art director on the previous film. Strawn also came up with the truck crash scene and the kaleidoscope hallway. And uh, so the junkyard also has the distinction of being filmed at the same location for both films. And it was a set built in a landfill in California. Credit where credit's due. Sets, very good. Very cool. And that junkyard that junkyard set is awesome. A lot of cool set pieces going on in this movie, for sure, which ties to Rennie being an action guy. And also that they have a higher budget. Well, that too. Yeah. Kincaid's dog is named Jason as a possible nod to the Friday the 13th movie with the slasher's name is Jason Voorhees. Come on. You knew that was coming, especially when he's like scratching people in the dream. Yeah. Yes, it's also interesting since Jason, the dog, brings Freddy back to life. (laughs) 
The first film in the franchise in which the end credits rolled instead of appearing in a slideshow, although only the cast credits roll and the remaining credits appear in a slideshow. As Rick steps off the elevator, a Japanese-inspired version of the Nightmare on Elm Street theme plays. Good God, man. Mm -hmm. There, There was one fun appearance of a song, though, when he's doing the... When he's doing his his karate, we hear drama ramas anything anything, which I was like, really? Mm-hmm. That's just a song I knew from like alternative radio when they would play it all the time. But I was like, oh. So Rick's death, he was supposed to die in the elevator. The elevator was supposed to like fall apart all around him until he was falling into just dark space. But they had run out of money at that point. So they decided to go. And and they had also thought, maybe we just won't kill him. But they had already filmed his funeral. So like, okay, let's put him in a dojo. Because we've already established, like, the karate thing with him. So as cheesy as that was, it was a budget thing. (laughs) Uh, uh. I I did find it funny. We're in the middle of this movie. I was like... This guy walked so Skeet Ulrich could run and scream. Mm-hmm. So Billy could run. <laughs> yeah. When Alice goes to the theater, there's a poster for Reefer Madness 2, The True Story, as well as a poster for Hairspray. Both are New Line Cinemas films. Yep. Yep. The sandcastle form of the Elm Street house is visible in a freeze frame before the sandcastle explodes. Alice's abilities originally included those from the Dream Warriors, but they were cut due to fear of confusing the audience. What? What? Mm-hmm. We're going to confuse the audience by referencing the movie we just made last fucking year? Mm-hmm. How did Robert Shea make this much money off this goddamn franchise when he's a total idiot? Yeah, well, he kept printing money at this point. I know, but come on. (laughs) When Rennie Harlan signed on to the film, the 1988 writer's strike had just started. He only had seven weeks of pre-production and felt that the script was not ready. Due to the strike, Harlan started the rewrite of the script himself and the final rewrite done together with Rachel Talalay and Michael DeLuca. Some storylines and dialogue were written during the production of the film. Uh, okay. Har- Harlan sees the writer's strike as a blessing in disguise as it allowed him to develop his own surreal and nightmarish ideas for the film. Nope. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely fucking not. All of this makes a lot more sense right now. Yep. If you'd have told me that when we were in the writing. No. Woo. No. Oh, this... This changes my entire outlook over this whole movie. Yeah, no, no, no. Rennie, Rennie fucked it up. Rennie fucked it up real good. Yes, he did. This is not to take away from the fact that he is so good at big action sequences. Mm-hmm. He has an eye for it. He has an eye for dynamic camera work. Do not let him in spitting distance of the goddamn script. Mm-hmm. Don't do it. That's not what he's good at. At the 30th anniversary screening in 2018, Robert Shea was not officially invited, but Rennie Harlan asked him to come. And during the the Q&A, Harlan emotionally thanked Shea for, quote, single-handedly changing his entire life with this film. And he told how Shea personally wanted to congratulate, in Swedish, Harlan's mother on the phone on the film's success on the premiere night in Hollywood, which was very sweet. Well, that's one nice thing you did, Robert Shea. 
The only credit I'll give you. Oh, no, no, no. There's, I have one more bit to read you <laughs> because you will die laughing. In a 2021 interview with Slash Film, Rennie Harlan explained his approach to the film and why it made executives nervous and the ultimate vindication of his, his vision. I said, this is the fourth movie of the franchise. We really can't pretend that the audience doesn't really know what's going on. We can't just make it scary and expect the audience to just buy it. It's too much a part of the culture already. So we have to twist it. Let's make Freddy the James Bond of horror. For fuck's sake. Mm-hmm. Oh, fuck you. No. And so it just went on and on and on. And it was finally, they had a test screening and they were very nervous. And the audience just kept applauding and screaming and laughing. And Bob Shea looked at him and said, I think you were right. They got a standing ovation. For this movie? Yep. At the test screening. The fuck was wrong with us in the 1980s? So many things. Why? I, okay. All right. I'm, I'm going to need to lie down after this one. <laughs> Good God. During production, the writers, director, and producers couldn't figure out how to kill Freddy at the end of the film. Eventually, during a meeting, they discussed all of the possible ways to kill a villain or creature in the film. Shooting, stabbing, burning, etc. Mm-hmm. And they realized that all of those methods they were thinking came from external forces. And they decided they needed to do the opposite. And that's where they decided that Freddy needed to be killed by an internal force. And that's where they came up with the concept of Freddy's reflection, causing the souls of his victims to revolt and tear him apart from the inside. Okay, okay. Now, Freddy getting torn apart from the inside by the souls of the children that he's inhabited. Yes. Genuinely cool idea. Yes. The trigger for that being a fucking mirror mirror story Mm -hmm. makes me want to punch somebody in the throat. Yes. Have an iota of imagination. Oh, yeah. And not use some, use the most well-trodden story element ever Mm -hmm. what (laughs) yeah that's that's just a thing that happened so that leads us to ratings ratings every film we have our own special rating system for this film oh there's a lot of choices sadly let's let's go with dogs oh go with jason's jason's i kind of want to go with with rick's karate bullshit but no I'm going to go with something. Oh, no, 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 no. It's got to be the nunchucks. Okay, nunchucks. I it's accept gotta, nunchucks. One of the... I accept nunchucks. That had it had proper context would actually be pretty cool. But because it had none, was one of the goofiest fucking things I've ever seen in my life. Fair. Fair. Ugh. It's your series. Fuck. So I have to go first. I'm going to go a two. It's a okay. two. Because I, I like the concept as a direct sequel to the last one, which was very good. Yeah. I graded the last one very well. But the acting is shit. The writing itself is shit. The direction is not shit, but it is not correct for this film. I really think the actors are the thing that are killing it for me because they are so bad. It's a two. It's a two. (sighs) I'm going one and a half slightly against my gut because I want to say one, but I'm afraid that this franchise is going to let me down to lower depths before we're done with it. You have three more to go. So I need to reserve that right, I think. Yep. All of the reasons you said are correct, and also this movie was making me angry watching it. And then you tell me all of this, and it makes me even angrier, because the only... 
The only like salvaging thing about this movie is it gave a dude who made probably two of the best action movies of the 90s his big break. Mm-hmm. That's like the only redeeming thing that came out of this goddamn movie. Yep. Otherwise, it just printed money with nothing to do. It was so boring. And then to understand that rather than sit and wait, because I I understand New Line Cinema is running on a razor thin budget, but you could have sat on this story if you didn't feel like it was ready. You really can. I'm sorry. I understand you got money considerations, but you can wait it out. And instead, you gave the guy who doesn't write... The story to fix. All of it is infuriating for how, for what the franchise has done so far with so little. Mm-hmm. Now that they've got a budget, they just threw it in the garbage. But because I need to reserve the right for this franchise to take me much deeper, <clears throat> I, I have to give it some credit for the things that do work for the set pieces. And as you point out, for Rennie, Going, I mean, again, going for it Mm -hmm. just in the wildly worst way that you could for this movie. Yeah. One and a half. I think that's fair. I'm not mad about that. I wanted to go one, but I'm worried. I really wouldn't have been mad at you if you had done one. I'm I'm worried, though. I'm just worried that if I level set myself too low, (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I don't know where we're headed next. Well, next we're headed to The Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. Uh, yeah, I don't... You already said Alice is coming back. Yeah, I don't... I don't... I don't even know, dude. I don't even know. <laughs> I've... Like, I've not seen... I've... I hadn't seen this. I haven't seen that. I'm pretty sure I haven't seen anything with Final. I've probably seen scripts. For this series, we're not doing Freddy versus Jason because we haven't done the Jason films yet. And then we'll we'll do crossovers once we've done that series. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a future problem. <sighs> yeah. Oh boy. I hope they at least f- figured out what to do with the main character in the next one. No clue. No clue. Oh God. So until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.